Hello and welcome to the July 2008 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, Science That's Changing Your World. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm David Cameron. And I'm Alyssa Neller. And this month we'll take a look at access to healthcare. Ever wonder who gets the lion's share of free drug samples? One researcher investigates. Another team literally drives medical professionals to underserved communities. Plus, researchers develop a computer language that gets into the mind of the cell. But first, Judith Montmany spoke with HMS Associate Professor Stephanie Woolhandler at the Cambridge Health Alliance about access to free drug samples and her views on universal health care. Dr. Woolhandler, I know that you were looking into free samples. What did your study find? We did a study uh, led by Dr. Sarah Catrona, who was a research fellow at the time, to look at who actually gets free samples. Are doctors getting free samples to poor people and uninsured people? And it turns out uh, the exact opposite was the case. That is, the overwhelming majority of all free drug samples are given to affluent people and folks with insurance. Now, when we dug down a little deeper, this was primarily because free samples were being distributed in private doctor's offices, and private doctor's offices are places where more well-insured and affluent people are seen, whereas hospital outpatient departments and clinics uh, see more low-income people and are less likely to give out free samples. So the overall effect of free drug sample distribution was not to make the healthcare system more equal, but to actually make it less equal. So from your vantage point, what would make the healthcare system more equal? We could make the health system more equal by doing what every other developed nation has done, which is to institute some form of nonprofit national health insurance. The key to getting national health insurance is that you can capture administrative savings. So simply by taking our administrative apparatus, shrinking it down to the size of Canada's, we would free up about $300 billion annually Now, that would let us cover all 47 million uninsured people. It's also enough money to allow us to improve the coverage so that everyone could get needed medical care basically free at the time of use. And I understand that you periodically make trips down to Capitol Hill? I go to Capitol Hill frequently. I don't lobby, but when I'm invited to go... I'm happy to go. Most recently, uh, last summer, I was on Capitol Hill uh, for a special hearing at the uh, House Veterans Affairs Committee based on some research we'd done here at Harvard showing that uh, more than 12% of all non-elderly veterans in the United States are completely uninsured. So the assumption that anyone who's been in the armed services, when they get out, they have health care for life, That's not true, is it? No, that's absolutely false. In order to be eligible for VA care, you can either have a service-connected disability, which the VA will take care of, or you have to flunk a means test. That is, you have to be a low-income person, and then they'll let you into the VA. The majority of working veterans earn too much money to qualify for that means-tested VA care, Many of them would also earn too little money to be able to afford private health insurance. And it's that middle-income group uh, that's frequently uninsured 
And uh, based on our study, uh, our research, it's about 12%. And does that parallel what's happening in the general population in this country? Absolutely. The majority of uninsured people in the United States live in working families. So until there's agreement in this country on how to tackle this big elephant of a problem, what do people who don't have health insurance do? I have a couple of suggestions. One is to look to see if there are community clinics, neighborhood health centers in your area that offer reduced price services, reduced priced care. If people are veterans, they should check to see if they're eligible for Veterans Administration care. Uh, Many people may have checked once and found they weren't eligible, but if their income falls, they may become eligible. Um, There is still free care available at hospitals in the state of Massachusetts. The institutions don't get paid very well for it, but many of them, such as Cambridge Hospital and I think some of the other Harvard teaching hospitals, do still have free care available if you absolutely can't afford the care. I just want to get tested, see how am I, am I going all right, am I living or what's the story? Okay, you want to do, your, check your blood pressure, Everything, yeah. blood sugar, cholesterol? Yeah. Oh, right. Welcome to The Family Van, a travelling team that provides free education, counselling, support and healthcare to Boston's economically disadvantaged neighbourhoods. I'm Yvonne Ariki and this is a special report on an effort to bridge the divide between some of the nation's most prestigious teaching hospitals and medical schools and underserved communities located just a few miles away. Nancy Oriol, Dean of Students at Harvard Medical School and founder of The Family Van, told me what inspired her to start the program in the first place. My goal was to bridge what appeared to me to be a gap uh, between the resources that were available in Boston and the people who needed resources and either didn't know how to access them or didn't know how to navigate the system. Uh, the fact that they were two blocks away from each other made the, that gap seem you know, just uh, incomprehensible. We sort of grew from an idea to a reality over a two-year period. And that's how long it took to actually find out what the community wanted and needed and what we could potentially create and together we build it. Back on the family van at Upham's Corner in Mattapan, staff member Jamie Duggan explained her role to me. And I work for Boston Medical Center, okay. which is you know, a fairly big hospital, and I come on to a few of the sites and offer rapid HIV testing and counseling. So people who are getting other services here, you know, the person who might be helping them with their services could say, you know, are you interested in doing an HIV test today? My goal is to meet people where they are because a lot of people aren't coming into clinical settings to get HIV tests. And a lot of the people who are at the highest risk for HIV aren't getting tested. So the goal of my program, Project Umbrella, is to bring it to them wherever they are while they're getting other services, make it as convenient as possible. While chatting with Duggan, one thing I noticed that was slightly unusual was that she wasn't wearing any kind of uniform. No white lab coat or even any scrubs. In fact, just like me, she was wearing jeans. I have definitely found that it's more effective, not just for me to be relaxed in the way that I look, but the way that I talk to people and and just be real with people. And they 
people seem to respond to that and say, oh, thanks for, you know, treating me like a regular person or, you know, thanks for being real with me. At this point, the van's medical director, Dr. Bikash Verma, came over to speak to me as well. And he told me a bit more about what services the van provides. The kind of programs which we run over here, screening, is very, very helpful in prevention because it's very cost-effective, very time-saving. For example, if she comes, I'll check her cholesterol, I'll check her pressure and see for her young, healthy age, is it good, is it bad, or is it alarming? So if it is alarming, then I or other colleagues will say, okay, this person needs to go to the ER. You know, some of the diseases we screen for, there are no, there are no symptoms initially. So the patient feels, why should I go to the ER? Why do I have to go to the doctor? I'm okay. But as a physician, I know that this is really dangerous. My last chat was with Devet Roundtree, the incredibly bubbly driver of the van. What is your role on the family van? What do you do? Everything. Anything and everything that can be done. Um, the driver, maintenance lady, <laughs> health educator, friend, counselor, <laughs> you know, everything. Um, more amazing than anyone can imagine. You have to really want to care for people. And um, I've got that written all over my face and, and everything. So it's where I belong. This is my area. The patients we see are amazing group of people. Everyone from all different walks of life. And the name Family Van is important because once they come on the van once, after that, everybody's treated like a family, you know. Roundtree's final comment about the family van took me back to the conversation I had with Nancy Oriel and her vision for the future of the van. People call us the knowledgeable neighbor. That's, that's what we are. Just watching the people that come through the van and the stories they tell us, it's clear that we're having an impact on people's lives. So where I see the van going is to try to get a better understanding of why we're so successful and sharing that with other programs. Remember The Matrix, that trilogy of films where Keanu Reeves battles villains in a simulated reality? Well, the world of biology has come one step closer to that world, minus the aliens and the kung fu. Jeremy Gunawardena and Anil Malavarapu, scientists in Harvard Med School's Department of Systems Biology, have created a computer language that doesn't just encode biological information, it can actually do biology, acting as a kind of scientific collaborator. Based on an open source program widely used in artificial intelligence, this new language, called Little B, is designed to think like a cell thinks. As a result, biologists can input data into the program, and the program can reason over the data and start drawing its own conclusions. So how might this resemble the virtual world of Neo and Morpheus? Gunawardna explains. What happens is you give the computer some information, and the computer, in, as it gets more and more complicated, starts drawing things that you, know, you may not have been aware of, and suddenly there are things in your system that you didn't realize you had implied. You know, one of the issues that we hadn't appreciated when we first got into it is that it's actually a, a step into an unknown universe. The researchers have a pretty clear vision for this project. They want every biologist in the world to use it. Ultimately, they hope that an open-source community of biologists will use this language to collectively build a single virtual cell, a dynamic biological system living 
in software. Well, it's time for us to sign off and get back to the real world. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. Music for this episode is arranged by our colleague John Ryan. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.